I'd also say that uh, teams that play together stay together. You could say that. <laughs> except, except if it's Monopoly, in which case they don't go anywhere near it. Because <laughs> there's anything, there's anything guaranteed to sort of make a team fall apart, much like a family. It's uh, Monopoly. You're listening to the Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. And welcome to another episode of the Occupational Philosophers, a not-so-serious business podcast designed to help you become more curious, creative, and imaginative. And Simon, hello to you. Hello, John. Lovely to see your smiling face, as always. I'm feeling perky. Good to hear. Good to hear. (laughs) And we should explain to listeners that's because the time difference. It's very early in the morning with me, so I've just uh, got my coffee to keep me awake. And week three of cold showers. Come on, yeah, Wim Hof, nice one. So, look, John, I'm going to throw to you. What's caught your curious eye this week? And the reason we kick off like this is we think it's really good to be curious. At the heart of being a great occupational philosopher is that ability to look at the world with wise wide open. So, John, what's caught your curious eye this week? Well, it's nothing too profound. I often don't turn up too many profound things with my curious eye. However, we had a, a family trip to London just uh, recently. And as we were walking through the streets, you just look up and you look around and it was those moments of uh, serendipity and what catches your eye. And we found ourselves outside a wine shop. Now, I didn't take the kids in, but I did have a look inside because it had the most splendid display of wines and champagne magnums and nebuchadnezzars and salamanzas and all the massive bottles of wine so it drew my eye so i went inside and i started chatting to the chap there and i said uh, uh, what have you got that's like really crazily expensive because this is the heart of may yeah, here in yeah, london yeah. so the nice part of town yeah this is not odd bit yeah yeah <laughs> not your not your tesco <laughs> he took me over to this cabinet at the far end of the of this store this almost a department store of wine and, and booze. And there in a glass cabinet, he showed me a bottle of Japanese whiskey. Yes. 70 centiliters. Okay. So, you know, just like a normal size bottle of whiskey. Guess the price tag. Come on. There you go. Guess I the price tag. I am pushing. One bottle. One bottle. 300,000 pounds. Wow. Well, you're certainly getting into the right order of magnitude in terms of <laughs> craziness, in terms of pricing. It's actually nearly d- over double that. Oh, okay. Six hundred and fifty thousand pounds. There you go. Now my question is: Did he say how many of those they sell? <laughs> Which was exactly my question. And he said, "Oh, the last bottle we sold was to a chap from Singapore." So there you go. Someone in Singapore is waking up with a hell of a hangover. Well, my understanding is you don't, these these are like investments. You don't actually drink them. Or you might buy one to drink <laughs> and buy one to invest. And then you on-sell the, yeah, so it's like a commodity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we all know what happens. That's that's the bottle <laughs> that gets reached for right at the end of the night, isn't it? Along with the Ouzo and Perno. Okay, let's just have a nightcap. Or your, or your nephew. <laughs> no! Your nephews and nieces come around to stay. They get a bit loose and they <laughs> let's go look in Uncle Colin's cabinet. This looks all right. <laughs> <laughs> Japanese, I'm sure it'll be fine. It's not the best. It's not, it's not from Scotland, but it'll do. It'll do. Ah! <laughs> how about 
<laughs> How about you, sir? Well, John, mine is possibly even more shallow than yours. And look, I was... <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple of things that caught my eye. I'm going to save one for the next episode. But this one is in the Indian state of Maharashtra. I hope I've said that right. Now, <laughs> some dogs in this town killed a baby monkey. So the monkeys have gone on revenge and have gone around and killed all the dogs, about 250 of them. And they've been taking them up to the tops of buildings and throwing them off and apparently killed about uh, 250 by dropping them to their deaths. Is this the beginning of Planet of the Apes or something? (laughs) Signs of the times, John. I was going to say, is this the next apocalypse? Just about to happen. Flipping heck. Now, I put a note here. According to the Daily Mail, dot, dot, dot. So, you know, okay. so, quality. Yeah, quality. <laughs> yeah the, the village has been under attack because after they've gone after the small dogs, they decided they're going to start having a go at the kids. No kids have been hurt, but a lot of monkeys have been chasing animals and they've gone and had to bring in the local wildlife department to capture said monkeys and take them somewhere else so what wildlife department they, they need charlton heston and the army yeah 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 so um and there's <laughs> also get, another thought saying we can't be sure that it's a revenge killing for the killing of their baby monkey by dogs but we can't rule it out so uh yeah monkeys wow. on revenge <laughs> <laughs> and it's not funny because if your dog's That's, killed uh, by a monkey, no. it's very sad. But that caught my eye. That caught my eye. Yeah, I'm not surprised. You ought to read something different. <laughs> <laughs> now, moving on from monkey land, John, and death of the dogs by monkey hand, something else did catch my eye this week, which is the basis of today's show, and that is a quote and involved a cat. Now, we like to talk about cats, but this is why maybe what's caught my Mm -hmm. eye, and the quote is, playfulness is so important. I think I'm like a cat. Cats are always wondering. If you throw a paper ball to a cat, it can play for a whole day. And this is a quote from the artist Ai Weiwei, spelled A-I-W-E-I-W-E-I. So Chinese artist, but a huge artist on the global art scene mm. and revered around the world for what he does. But I love this idea of I'm like a cat, I can play all day. With a paper ball, but that's only because they can't get to the uh, well, Nintendo sure. Switch controllers. <laughs> I haven't worked that out, but uh, <laughs> I love his thoughts around it, like that idea of, you know, I can play all day, which then takes us into his mind and how he continues to bring this sense of playfulness to his work and is one of the leading artists in the world on the back of that. That's uh, the idea that he's kind of uh, keeps sort of focused on something, playing with it, bashing it around, pulling at it, coming around it, working with it. That's, uh, I think, is that the kind of gist of that, that he can just immerse himself in something yeah. and just keep coming around something? And also bring pulling the sense of ways. play to what he does and his creation. And look, I'll read a little bit more. He says, I have survived a difficult life and I'm a very handy person. My hands are always working. If your hands are not working, your brain is not going to function. I'm very capable. Carpentry, stone, iron. I've also become skillful on social media. 
and that I weigh weighs about 60, I would say, 65 maybe. Everything is about the continuity of learning and learning comes from curiosity. But essentially at the heart of that is his ability to play. So play like a cat. That becomes our theme for the show then. I was thinking about this actually, playing like a cat, because aside to the fact that they can't access game controllers, I did wonder what they could do, because cats yeah, got so- nine lives, haven't they? So if I was a cat, <laughs> I, you could play really dangerous stuff, couldn't you? Because you think, well, if this goes wrong, I've still got another eight lives left. So you know, you could do extreme stuff like, I don't know, you could <laughs> bungee jump and fire it. Without a bungee. Together. Yeah. <laughs> extreme <laughs> Without a bunch of extreme <laughs> furballing. <laughs> hey, don't matter. <laughs> oh, I've died. Now, oh, I've I, wa- life. I wonder hey, when the wise old cat comes around and says, young sage, you've only got nine lives and you've used eight. I think it's about time we... <laughs> and yeah. that's when I would take up chess. <laughs> when I've got one life left, I go, you're absolutely right, wise cat. I will now sort of rein it in. So, look, when we think around play, and look, we probably all maybe go to a slightly different place when we talk about this, but I went to the dictionary as you go, as you do, I should say, and the Webster Dictionary says it's an activity done for its own sake, characterised by means rather than ends, i.e. the process is more important than any endpoint or goal. So I think that's the lens which we will look through today when we talk around play. So something done for its own sake, characterised by what happens as you do it rather than the end goal. And somebody we'll talk about as we come through today, Simon, will be Ash Perrin as well. Because remember, very early on, we had an episode with Ash and that was all about play and the work that he did with the Flying Seagulls. And he had a lot to say in his book, The Real Play Revolution. And it was about the experience rather than any particular outcome that was key to it and i think that is one of the things that we can think about if we go into the workplace how can we design stuff where that we're focused on just the activity and the experience rather than necessarily some measure and also it's worth going back to see i think maybe episode five or six Uh, go back and uh, check out ash and for some context what does ash do if you haven't listened to that episode where this sense of play is so important what what, what's the flying seagull project so the flying seagull project is a troupe of circus entertainers and performers who travel quite far and wide really they'll take play into refugee camps so they work out in samos greek islands they work across all manner of different countries throughout Europe and Southern Europe, and they'll bring play and fun and joy to children in very, very difficult and traumatic circumstances. So a real, a real wonderful project that they have. And then they do a lot of stuff in the UK as well. If you do ever get a chance to check them out, do check them out. They are just something else to see. Absolutely brilliant. And they raise money at festivals and like so. But all of it is rooted in the idea of unbridled, liberated play. And uh, just off on a little tangent, but one I want to go to, What's his quote around growing up? And he says, anyone below the age of 80 who is asked to grow up should be, or if, no, if you ask someone, no, what is it, John? Tell me. <laughs> it is anyone okay. under the age, it might be 95, but anybody under the age of 95 that's asked to grow up, it should be considered an act of violence. So he's, uh, he's, 
he's he's quite a, he's, he's quite full on when it comes to sort of protecting the rights for play in everyone from a, you know a six month old baby to a ninety five year old grandmother. Quite right. <laughs> So, Simon, we have this definition of play as being this kind of sort of uh, activity without measure or outcomes, particularly as a focus. But we've got to be real here, particularly when we're talking about a not-so-serious business podcast, the idea of play play in an organisational workplace. Play, I say it like that, play, makes people cringe a bit. Like, oh, gosh, what, we, what are we going to have to do? What does this involve? What do you mean by play? So we recognise that sort of feeling of us recoiling a little, but... There's a whole bunch of science behind this, isn't there, about play, uh, not just in children as well and, and the benefits to children, but also that being drawn through to adults as well. So do you want to put your white lab coat on, Simon? Give us a bit of the science. I would, John. And like donning the white <laughs> lab coat right now just for this experiment. So give me 30 seconds and please ignore go. sounds. There's your, cli- there's your clip. <laughs> sounds in the background. Clipboard. There's your clipboard. Now, look, the study show that play literally does change the brain. And there's a study from, uh, as often quoted, and it's probably the one which kicked off this study into the brain and play, a lady called Dr. Marion Diamond of the University of California in Berkeley. Now, her and her colleagues published a paper about brain growth in rats, as you do. And it was a lengthy and landmark experiment in brain development where the rats were raised from birth in two circumstances. So one of a boring solitary confinement and another of exciting toy-filled colonies with lots of other rats. Now, when they examine the rats whose brains, or when they examine the rats' brains at the end of this, they discovered some interesting things. And this is when they had this aha moment around, here's how we should approach early childhood. So the cats, the cats, <laughs> cats, rats, no, it was the rats. The rats, impoverished, <laughs> were raised and lived in solitary confinement, had smaller and thinner cerebral cortexes than the rats who were raised in enriching environments where there were plenty of toys, tunnels, things to run on and for things to them to explore. So the follow-up research confirmed this again and again and again. Rats who are allowed to play and that read with this live in a stimulating environment full of fun stuff to do with exercises, your curiosity, had bigger brains and were smarter faster to learn, uh, cause and effect, and faster at finding their way through all of the mazes and the other little tests they set up for them. So, John, play mm-hmm. is very helpful for our brain's development. Not only makes our brain better, makes our brain smarter and faster. I'm intrigued by the experiment, though, just trying to imagine what those different environments look like. <laughs> the playful environment. Did they have the, the, the lucky rats? Did they have, like... Peloton bike, <laughs> and, and uh, it was like lockdown, wasn't it? They just put them in the maze, and it was like lockdown. Go, go and entertain yourselves. But here's a load of stuff to entertain yourself with. Yeah, so Peloton bike, and maybe PlayStation Four with Grand Theft Auto. Well, my understanding the, is, they, they, yeah, my understanding is uh, no electronic devices. And this was back in the 1960s, so I would say very limited. But things that they could play with. So. What they realised is, you know, play impacts the brain by causing the prefrontal cortex to become bigger and faster. And so playing changes the connections of the neurons at the front end of your brain. And without play, these neurons aren't changed. 
And I presume on a serious note, though, but that uh, development of the prefrontal cortex is important then for things they might want to turn their attention to, such as uh, problem solving. The prefrontal cortex is the brain's executive control center. That's where the brain regulates Uh emotions, makes plans, and solves problems. So the studies show that play is essential to healthy, maybe even exceptional brain development. And other stuff I've looked, which is not connected to this, but when we move and we improve, as Dr. Peter Lovett says, we send a bunch of oxygen up to the front of our brain and that prefrontal cortex release a bunch of those feel-good neurotransmitters which control the free flow of information between those different hemispheres at the front of your brain. So you're feeding into this area which play develops. But this is what's important, John. This is what's important. Often we think, okay, young kids, we'll get them to play something like a structured game, go outside and play some PE or sport. But this is what is important. Sergio and Vivian Pellis of the Canadian Centre for Behavioural Neuroscience at the University of Lethbridge, also founders of the International Play Association and authors of The Playful Brain. So we've got some heavy hitters here, John. They said to make the (laughs) most of early brain development, the kids need what is called free play, not structured play. So by engaging Mm -hmm. in free play, and a lot of it, our brain builds new circuits up in our prefrontal cortex and helps us to navigate those complex social interactions, but it has to be free and unstructured. And it also must be playful. So there's no end in mind other than engagement in the activity itself. Whoa, that's probably the most heavy-hitting brain stuff we've ever done, John. <laughs> yeah, that's you could take your coat yeah. off now. Yeah. Take your lab coat. That's it. Sit down, have a cup of tea, Ooh. rest. Yeah. That's exercised your brain quite a bit. I've hasn't hung it? my coat up. So, yeah. <laughs> so the the development of the brain, the ability of children to be able to then solve well, actually, no, not children, rats. Although by extension, children. Yes. To solve problems, <laughs> work things out, etc., is developed through play, and is that then also uh, does it feed into other things as well around emotional states? You said it was obviously brain development, but it plays into emotional states as well, doesn't it? For from uh, what the studies tell us, it helps lower stress, and we probably know this as adults when we do something fun, it lowers our stress, increases dopamine, which is what I spoke about before when we send that those feel good transmitters up to our brain, so that our pleasure and reward chemical, oxytocin, which is our bonding hormone when we make connections, and GABA, which is the karma of the nervous system or GABA. So look, play drives so much positive impact in our mind and also in our body and the way we interact. And here's what free play is important because in free play, because it's unstructured, you're constantly negotiating, changing rules, interacting, developing social bonds, and you're make, doing things on the fly. So it's very agile if we to use your, your world. So as such, <laughs> so that's such as how we start to learn about life as well and making decisions, negotiation, and just, you know, reimagining what we can do in a small space and time. And, look, you probably reflect on this with your kids when they're younger as well. They just You play with anything. You don't need structure. You just need stuff, you know, thrown out in front of you and away you go. As you said all of that, you kind of go, my gosh, we really ought to put meditation to one side and just have a, a play every day instead. I think I get more benefits from that. I get all the all the benefits of it, lowering stress, 
and it improves my cognitive functions. I mean, it seems like a <laughs> hey, hey, seems like a no brain. Yeah, so ha ha, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and look, the key here is we we often will think, okay, well, let's we've got a study, let's create an app and let's measure everything. But really, it almost seems counterintuitive in this space to even sort of try and measure it per se because you want to be engaging in that play. And here's a, here's a quote, John. We always like a quote. And it says, the drive to play freely is a basic biological drive. Lack of free play may not kill the physical body, as would lack of air, food or water, but it kills the spirit and stuns mental growth. And that's from Peter Gray, a contemporary American psychologist. And I love that sort of kills our spirit. And we talk so often around that, around our creative spirit. So it's sort of, I feel it's sort of that connects in that same spot. What it means to be human is to play. I was building on what you'd researched, Simon, to look at then something more about play in a scientific vein, and that was then the California-based National Institute for Play, which always makes me laugh. You go, these things exist. (laughs) There's a bunch of global organisations for play, actually. I think it's, yeah. It's it's amazing, isn't it? You go, I'd never have known. But somewhere there's a big build. Well, there might not be a big building there somewhere anymore. They might all work from home and have a ball pit in their own house. (laughs) But there's a National Institute for Play. And and so, of course, they've done some fantastic extensive studies around play. And they established seven play patterns. And I was drawn to this because it was a bit like imagination. You might remember the episode on imagination. And it was... We had an idea of it, but then suddenly as you started to explore it further, there was various different dimensions and facets to imagination. And the same thing extends to play. So they talk about attunement play, which is about establishing connections such as that between a newborn and a mother, the way they sort of do call and response to each other. You know, a mother will make faces and the, the baby will replicate that, will copy it. You get body play. That's when the babies, for example, start to explore the way their body works, the way the world works, making noises, discovering what happens if they fall over <laughs> or fail, yeah. whatever. Then they start picking things up, usually sticking them in their mouths. That's object play, yeah. banging stuff, making lots of noise. And that's that curiosity of what does this do? And then you start to come into things that we would start to recognize more readily, which is social play, you know, work, uh, with others. And that's where you start to get that building connection, starting for bonds starting to connect through the activity. Of and it's the, also building we building connections for life. Like that's where we learn. We learn our social skills in, in the playground to some extent. So, I mean, it's happening, yeah, from those very early months, days. So the, the social play is, is that, as you would say, in the playground. Imaginative or pretend play, that's then started to tap into the imagination. That is where we stand there with nothing other than our imagination and decide to be pirates or cowboys or whatever it is. And we sort of run around and tree becomes a ship and uh, everything else. And that's the beginnings of it. Storytelling play. Number six, that's where language plays a much bigger part. We start to get parents reading to children, children retelling the story, changing it, and obviously then telling their own stories. And that's a, a wonderful development in any child's life when they come back and tell you a story they've written i remember sharing mine with my parents and i'm <laughs> Go on, yeah. well funny enough my i found one of my books recently when i was in year four and i used to write massive long long stories and illustrate them unsurprisingly about 
monkeys and gorillas like in the jungle and literally sort of goes a bit to what I <laughs> spoke about today, like grabbing people and taking people up trees and they'd send in. Are you sure you've not just read a story? Are you sure this was a news report? <laughs> I've actually just I just read one of my old books. So, <laughs> but also I like this. All when we retell a story, often my my daughter is my my youngest sort of daughter now. She's my my recent point, but she'll often will rechange the stories and she'll go. No, I want to tell it in my way. And in your mind, you think no, it's the, you know obviously parent. No, that's not how it goes. But then you go, yeah, sure, why not? She'll go off and I'm going to retell yeah. the story and no, that character, I don't like the one to give it a new one. So yeah, that ability to, yeah, to play with words and stories. And look, there's one more, which probably goes to the heart of what we talk about most weeks or something along those lines. Yes. Yeah. That's a uh, creative play. And that's a state by where one plays with imagination to transcend what is known in the current state to create a higher state. For example, a person might experiment to find a new way to use a musical instrument thereby taking that form of music to a higher plane, or as Einstein was known to do, a person might wonder about things. Play is the highest form of research. Good old album. Yeah. You can always count on him <laughs> for a quote, can't you? Cool. Love cool. The hashtag love I love Albert podcast. But we, 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 I love Albert. <laughs> we can run with it. Or <laughs> the picture of him with his tongue out and that hashtag I love Albert. Let's go with that. New bit of And I like that idea of just sort of looking through my own lens of when you're creating an artwork and like I've painted very abstractly for most of my life. I've done a few things for a bit more linear. But when you paint abstractly, you just have to play to a large like you do may have something in mind of what it wanna be, some materials, but when you just you just have to push stuff around and give in to what may turn out look sometimes it's great sometimes it's not sometimes it's you know i've got a painting i've been doing for i think about 18 years or something so <laughs> i still haven't <laughs> let it go mate let it go let it go i still haven't resolved it but just that giving in to that sense of play where will it take us Okay, it's time for a little thought experiment now. And as in the tradition of philosophers from the past, where they would conduct thought experiments to transcend the usual mode of thinking and ask big questions, we will also have one today. So, John, this is called To Play or Play. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Very Shakespearean. Absolutely. So the idea of this is you have to work out is is this the I'm gonna give you a title. You need to work out is this the name of a play, like a true play, or is it the name of a game you would play? Okay. Right. Okay. So let's start right. off. Okay. okay. First one. Tongue of the fat man. Would you play um, this or watch it as a play? I certainly don't think I want to play Tongue of a Fat Man. That, that, that might be when the Japanese whiskey comes out. So you're saying it's something you would watch a play? It's something I would watch. John, it is something you would play. This was a game from 1989 on the old Commodore 64 DOS Mega Drive. The premise, <laughs> as an alien of your choice, fight your way through bad guys and ultimately face the fat man. A hard ass who needs a healthy portion of defeat. 
Yeah, and someone commented. I was, a, I was thinking it was a board game. That's why I was getting slightly worried about it. So someone involved drinking. Someone commented, "Why a series of games never spun off is beyond us." Legs of the fat man, ear canal of the fat man, and falling, failing vital organ of the fat man all have been great follow-ups. Okay, our next one. All right, she stoops to conquer by Oliver Goldsmith. Well, the fact you've put Oliver Goldsmith in there, I'm guessing that is a play I would watch. That is correct. And as I was saying, I was going, ah, oh, <laughs> crap, man. I think I'm blown up. <laughs> okay. This 18th century comedy makes a list of weird plays because it's enduring popularity and it's a clever amalgam of host of, bah, I'm going to skip this bit. Okay. All right. <laughs> I got it right. Though. You got it right. You got it right. Yeah. So we'll get rid of that one. I get a All right. Next one, John. Okay. Okay, this is a German word, Ergeis, and the German, no. <laughs> Let me try this again. All right. Okay, Ergeis, God bless the ring. I'm going to say that's a game I would play. Yes, that is correct. That is a computer game, and God bless the ring translates to random collection of letters. So I'm not quite <laughs> sure. Actually, I'm reading that. I'm not even sure if I got it right. But anyway, <laughs> that is definitely a game. Is it, you is it like a was it like a German version of Lord of the Rings or something? I'm not you quite had, sure. You had to go on a quest, or okay, yeah. okay. Let, let's see. Let's go now. The Red Devil Battery Sign. Would you watch that? The Red play, Devil Battery Sign. Or would you play that as a game? I'm gonna. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna watch that as a play. Oh, sounds great. John, you're pretty good. I'm normally do better, but this is oh. a uh, three-act play by American writer Tennessee Williams. So, correct. Now. Oh, oh okay. Oh, that's quite yeah. well known. very famous. Next one. Corre, corre, la graca. Is that a <laughs> play or something you would play? I think it's a play I would watch, but I would play it as a game as well because it sounds exciting. Okay, so if you remember your Spanish, cora, cora is run, run, and la caraca is just a nonsense word. But this is essentially the Chilean version of duck, duck, goose, if you know what that is. You played that game? <laughs> duck, duck, <laughs> Tap goose, someone yeah. on the head and yeah, this is so you. Absolutely. Yeah, so this is the Chilean version of that. So our last one, John. Is it Go a on. play or would you play this? The roar of the grease paint, the smell of the crowd. That is a play. Yes, this is because grease paint is associated with the theatre. I do. I've heard that. Yes, this is a play. <laughs> right. Yes, correct. Shown in Boston in 1965, and most people said, "Shouldn't it be the smell of the grease paint, the roar of the crowd?" But I don't know why it was named that way. So, John, that was to play or to play. <laughs> Now, thinking about play as a means of child development, obviously that naturally leads us into play and its impact on learning or the connection to learning. I'm going to start with this by Gwen Dewa, Dr. Gwen Dewa, who said that kids pay more attention to academic tasks when they are given frequent brief opportunities for free play. And then that went on to sort of uh, support a study or several studies, actually, that did show that schools, 
kids paid more attention to academics after they'd had a recess, an unstructured break where they could just run around with free to play with no direction from adults at all. And again, you just get more and more circumstantial evidence build on that as well. Chinese and Japanese students who might be considered among sort of best achievers in the world, they will often have schools that provide short breaks every 50 minutes or so. So they're changing the approach to education there as a means to improving outcomes for students. And this is this free play is different to structured play, which we might consider in you know, the UK or Australia, you know, physical education or PE classes. Now, that's not knocking the impact and the importance of physical education, but this is different. It's not a structured game of volleyball or, you know, softball or cricket or soccer or whatever it is. It's literally involves that exploration, investigation, and that sense of free play, and that drives the learning. Yeah, because I was thinking about this as well, because it in some ways goes back to Peter, love it. it also, Jez Rose touched on it as well, that PE and, and activity, what they want there is for kids to move fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah. The movement and exercise is good for their health, but also, again, that stimulates their abilities to concentrate and, and, and learn as well. So we know there's a connection there. But f- unstructured free play, again, is trying to achieve something completely different here again, tied into their abilities to study. But I think it's really interesting to distinguish between the two, and it's good to see that they don't see those as substitutes, PE being a substitute for free play. They are totally different. And our main man, uh, not Albert this time, but like Plato, who we've spoken about many times before, being the occupational philosophers, and his quote is, do not keep children to their studies by compulsion but by play. So you can Mm -hmm. see how this play you do outside and then transfer this mindset into the classroom as well and look I really like this idea of uh, you know play being self-motivated and fun I'll give an example of when I used to be a teacher many moons ago and my first foray into teaching was I taught at a I was the visual arts teacher and PE teacher for two unusual things to mesh together for kids who've been expelled from normal primary school so they're pretty loose pretty uh, wild kids in many ways, great kids, but, you know, they just hadn't fitted into that system. And so I taught art. And so we did a lot of sort of structured things where, um, let me say, like we do, you know, we'd learn how to do, make pencil cases or we do tie-dyeing or so lots of really creative stuff. But their favourite lesson, there's always an end in mind with these other classes, their favourite lesson, every semester or term I'd collect all the yoga tubs, the toilet rolls, the, um, you know, bits of tin foil, all this type of stuff all these plastic containers, and I would just literally have four huge boxes. I would dump it on the floor and I would say to them, okay, your one task is to make a robot. And they would just go crazy or to make a dinosaur and every term I'd do something different. But that was their favourite lesson of the whole term where it was just complete free play and they just ran for it. Even though I structured every episode, every lesson as a an art episode, it's all that exploration and being creative. This one they loved the most was just free and they, they went crazy. Yeah, and they loved it. So that notion of no rules, just play for free, here's the kit to get you started with that. Yeah, did the robots ever go rogue? 
Did they build anything that then sort of tried to take over the world? Uh, they built a fort and then uh, locked the teachers in it. So <laughs> with, a, with a drawbridge, but that was a, that was another story. So, <laughs> <laughs> And they were never seen again. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's the difference when we perform something for as not as a task or as a duty or something you need to tick off or something just for that piece of around engaging in it for the fun of it. There was something, uh, another connection to flow, which I know you'd spoken to, or we we explored together in a, a prior episode, Simon. What was the the idea that play was a route towards flow as well, wasn't it? Yeah, and this is from another study, and I've got hopefully I got it wrong by uh, Professor Ingslicht from 2014, and he says, when learning is perceived to be arduous, our ability to stay focused may feel like a limited resource that is drained over time. Right, and think of any of those conferences, workshops, whatever that may be, when you've, <laughs> you're feeling the, the lifeblood drain out of you. And it's hard to achieve a state of flow, the psychological experience of being totally and happily immersed in what you're doing. Play is an obvious gateway to the state of flow. And I would think there's a, there's a case for your best work comes in that state of flow, especially if your best creative work mm. or whatever your version of that creative work is, your best work comes when you're deeply immersed in that state of flow, which play helps bring about. So we should hold to that. When we come to think about how we might apply this in organisations, that's quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because if we want to do our best work at work, okay, then how can we create that state of play or that's that might lead to that state of flow. So I think that's really interesting. There's another quote here, again, just sort of sprinkling things in as we go. And I, I like this one as well because it, I know this has been talked about by different people, but it's important that we don't underestimate the play of children because it can produce a much more satisfyingly creative adult. And that was Dorothy and Jerome Singer, who were American psychologists of particular note. And I think that chimes with sir ken robinson yes who we've talked about a couple of times and, and i'm sure we'll have an opportunity to explore his work at a later point but he echoes that really which is if he was going to have anything within the education system it would be allowing children to have opportunity for play creativity use of their imagination because he knows that's going to have adults come through who can innovate and who are resilient and who you know know how to have empathy and all of these great things that come through creativity and play which leads to that and that'll be a future episode and we're talking about that tension in these systems like how much do we give to play where we can't tick that against a certain outcome where we might better tick learning levels or we might better tick um i mean reading levels or math levels or or something like that so that's that tension in the system and i think it's a nice one to think about when we start thinking about this sense of play at work i think now simon we have to head into the slightly more murky world of adult play <laughs> i can't i can't I'm trying not to laugh as I say that, and I'm sure there's a few people who are also laughing, but we simply mean bringing <laughs> the concepts of play into the realms of being a grown-up. And I think this is where the, we would recognise a tension, wouldn't we? As, yeah. as grown-ups, the idea of, hey, we're going to play. I mean, we get it in the idea of structured play, a game, because we play tennis and, and football and all that we have structured games that allow yeah. to play inverted commas i'm doing the inverted commas yes but we don't have 
much opportunity or even give much thought to the idea of free play, which is where a lot of benefits seem to come from, that idea of having something much more unstructured, much more sort of without boundaries. So shall we explore that for a bit? I mean, suffice to say, the benefits of play that we outlined earlier, we saw were fundamental building blocks to the development of healthy, smart thinking kids, extends to grown-ups. It's an important activity, regardless of age. It can bring about all those psychological benefits of lowering stress, creating sort of happier adults. Uh, smiling. Just yeah. have fun, smiling, whether that's them sort of engaging in arts or exploring stuff just that takes their interest. As long as it's unstructured, it, it can deliver those same benefits. So that's the first thing to note is it doesn't stop delivering. Play is still important, whatever your age. And our brain is plastic, as we know. The more and more research tells us that what we thought around brain development many years ago, where it just it stopped and became static after a certain age, you know, neuroscience has debunked that. So our brain is always, always, always developing if we choose to develop it. So let's go to a quote from our main man. Uh, Play is the highest form of research. Thanks, Uncle Albert. You're continuing to rock the crate quotes. And this sort of sits around this creativity cannot exist without uncertainty. So we need to let go of the things we know is 100% true and open ourselves up to that mess, that discomfort that play brings. And that is exciting. So when we create and we bring this sense of play we embrace this uncertainty and we know with risk and uncertainty also comes a great reward as well. So, John, maybe what can that look like in an organisation? Is it do we bring a sense of play to this or do we literally say you've got some time set aside where you can play? What, what, does, what does it look like? Because we're navigating through the weeds a little bit here. Well, I would say that you would simply... Not simply, <laughs> simple about it. But I think I think it would be about framing play. And you might not even use the word play. I think that's yeah. the other thing as well is language is important here because, as we said earlier, if you say play in an organisational context, a lot of people would recoil. They go, oh, here we go. We're going to start doing some daft stuff with a ball pool and we're going to start <laughs> chucking plasticine at each other. And it's not that, but... If you can present the idea of play as being something that gets people to a place where they feel liberated to explore, experiment, where there is no concept of failure, then I think you could engage people in a business to sort of go, okay, let's get into this state of play because it's going to allow us to explore stuff together. It allows us to bond. It allows us to come up with innovative thoughts or it allows us to express some creativity without any fear. So one would be framing players, creating an environment where our best work might be able to emerge. Yeah, and I often run a, an activity sort of almost at the start of everything, every program I ever run, and I won't go into the details, but essentially everyone laughs themselves senseless by the end of it. And it's a great little activity, but I always say, well, what's the aha moment from that? And one, when you move, you improve. So again, you release a bunch of oxygen. You feel really good, goes up to your brain. When we laugh, we also release a bunch of those feel-good uh, neurotransmitters. And so all feel-good chemicals go up to our, our brain. And also, once we step out of our comfort zone and embrace this sense of play, 
nothing bad happens. And in fact, it's probably, I say, where the best stuff happens. And so the frame is bring that sense of movement, of laughter, and that sense of play to what we do today. Just sort of bottle that and look through that lens. And it's a really nice frame for the day because where we take people, especially if you're in that space of you know, innovation, creativity, design, thinking differently, you push yourself to those boundaries. But you think, oh, approach it with a sense of play. And also, make it, oh, yeah, I feel a bit more comfortable about what's going to happen as the day goes on. So the framing of it's really important. I mean, you could lead with the science quite a bit. If you're trying to engage a, a senior team, I think you could lead with the science and start to lay out the benefits of much of one, the ones you just described there. But yeah, the way that allows teams to connect, the way it allows them to explore without worrying too much about where they have to get to, I think that's key. I'd also say that Teams that play together stay together, you could say that, <laughs> except if it's Monopoly, in which case they don't go anywhere near it because <laughs> there's, anything, there's anything guaranteed to sort of make a team fall apart, much like a family, it's uh, Monopoly. <laughs> I'm laughing, thinking at trying to get my kids to sit down and play Monopoly. No way. They're like 20 minutes in. What? How long does this go for? Oh, no. Did you see Tom, the chief financial officer? He threw the Monopoly board up in the air, spilled everything everywhere, and then he walked out. <laughs> but Lego is quite good as well. I like the idea with Lego. They have the serious play sets. Yeah. And I like the way they've just brought serious and play together as a almost a portmanteau word. They sort of bring these together. We might be trying to having to tackle serious topics. Okay, we get yeah. that. But we can go about that in a way that engages us in an activity that might be sort of considered play or playful uh, and, and get to some good insights through that. And what that does when you have this sense of play or if you have an object you can play with, if I'm, I've, I don't know a huge, I sort of do, but I'm not a well-versed in Lego series play as to what the always the aim in mind is. But my understanding is you create a metaphor that you can talk about. And the good thing with that is you create sort of a shared artifact that can take the heat out of a very prickly situation or provide a common understanding. And it is good to make things. Like you actually start to, like uh, Ai Weiwei said before, you, you turn your brain into overdrive. So when you're making stuff, which is the play, also you're sending different messages to different parts of your brain. Different parts of your brain are connecting and firing off. So then, one, you're not only creating something that you can talk differently about because you've got an artifact or something people can understand, but you've also sent your brain into all sorts of different places and sparked off different ideas. And when I do, when I teach the drawing, I often say, look, if you draw and you put something in front of someone, you can talk to the drawing and it can take the, the sting, the heat out of that situation if it's a difficult conversation or provides that common level of understanding. And if everyone's drawing, you've all had a good time in the process, which is why you can bring this sense of play to this situation so through making stuff which i think also works for prototyping as well when you prototype you create that common the thing that people can interact with and whenever i do prototyping i always say if you find yourself having a good time don't be alarmed that's a very normal thing and i've done this i've done loads of design thinking sessions the last six eight weeks and every time you do the prototyping piece the energy in the room goes through the roof because you're given permission to play with cardboard pipe cleaners and you know make something rough and ready but it's almost like arts and crafts class if that's the right way to think about it and you know people have a good time
I've got a Venn diagram forming in my mind. <laughs> well, it wasn't going to take too long, was it, John? <laughs> Which always for me is my aha moment. Yes. Um, but as we talked about all the framing of this, but I do think there is something whereby you've got performance. We recognize that play can improve performance because yep. it allows people to sort of stretch and problem solve through the state of play. They get to places they might not have done without that. There's something about engagement. Yeah. It's an engaging thing. And there's something about well being as well. All of those things that play offers in terms of lowering stress releasing oxytocin this is all good stuff for well-being and if there was ever a, a topic of the moment i mean well-being is definitely one of the biggest topics that people are concerned about in creating environments that are good for people's well-being that then leads to higher levels of employee engagement and positive affectation to the organization they're working in and that drives performance so we know they all interlink interlock everything always does but i was just struck by that if we frame this right and then it becomes a question i think of then saying okay well what kind of things might we do that would get us into that playful state and then just organize it organize those types of environments those types of sessions think about it don't just sit around a boardroom table think about how you might engage playfully in the topic of the day and then go, okay, well, we're going to use this material over here. We're going to draw this or we're going to break out into groups or we're just going to freewheel. Whatever it is, I think you then just have to get organized about it. So, <laughs> Allowing people to have some free play in an organized way. I know there's a slight sort of contradiction in terms, but does that make sense? Yeah, well, yeah, it does. And I think it goes to the tension at the heart of all this. Like, How do you integrate play into you know we all do very serious jobs and we all work our asses off and if you're sitting there thinking play my job sucks or you know whatever that is or nose to the grind it sort of seems a bit like oh you know you're rubbing my face in it saying <laughs> we're going to play and I've thought today have I been very playful no not but it, it is how do I often think think how do I bring a sense of play how can I bring more play to this task I'm doing instead of going into that sort of, oh, I just got to knock this out of the park and not, not, you know, just get it done, just nose to the grind. So how do you bring that sense of play, which is that maybe spirit of adventure, a spirit of openness, a spirit of trying things, experimentation, which goes to the heart of everything we talk around, you know, being curious, being creative and reimagining. And I heard a great one there recently, which was just that idea of we've got, we got work sometimes that's heads down. Absolutely. We're full into it. We are just getting the tasks achieved. But then you get heads up. That's where you're scanning. That's where you're yeah. seeing patterns, new ideas, opportunities. And then there's heads together. And that's where you come together and you start to collaborate and you start to problem solve together or creatively think together to come to some solutions or to innovate. And I thought that was recognizing where those opportunities are to play. Yeah, and I like this quote uh, here by David Hockney, and I'll put a link to him. He's one of my favourite British artists and still alive, so contemporary British artist. People tend to forget that play is serious. So if you bring this sense of play, the spirit of adventure, the spirit of openness to when you're trying to solve a problem, I think that's a or think up a new product or design something for your clients, new services and solutions, or even an open mindset around how do we stop wasting so much time on X, X and X. This moment of play is, it can be big business as well.
just sitting there listening to this thing, how do I bring play? What would that look like for me? I think, John, it's how do I bring that sense of play to some of the things I need to do? How do I maybe recognise those moments when it's head down, ass up, and other times when it's that, when do I need to be a bit more, when do I need to bring that sense of openness, playfulness, try a few new things before I go to the solution? And I think what will be common amongst, whether we're looking at individual teams and organisations or leaders, there's a mindset thing here isn't yeah it? so as individuals we can absolutely go look yes i'm tackling serious topics but let's just try to come above that sometimes and have a sense of curiosity playfulness about things particularly when i might be turning my attention to try and solve problems i don't have to be there with furrowed brow chewing off the end of a pencil trying to sort of, you know get the good it there's got to be opportunities to come at it a different way and also thing around those things which gather our interest on the weekend, say when we're not at work, where we might have a hobby or something like to make or create or where we do find ourselves in the flow of where maybe, yeah, we used to play music or yeah, you might pick it up or whatever that is, that you're exercising those muscles of curiosity, creativity, imagination when you're doing that, that sense of exploration. How do you bring some of that mindset into work as well? Because we do play a lot more probably outside of work than we give ourselves credit for. And if you've got kids, play with them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you want to connect to your playful nature, play with kids and let them take the lead. You know, let them yeah. go, right, Dad, you're the pirate captain. Go walk the plank. Whatever it is, immerse yourself in that. Because that, again, is wonderfully refreshing and energetic. So if you've got small kids, oh, enjoy it. Give, which, you know, a lot of us will have. So give in to that sense of play, embrace it. And also notice there's a time and place to bring that on as well. John, what about teams? Like, How do we think? What, what's the sense of play look like or uh, the ability to play? What, what does that look like for teams? My immediate thing, again, is framing it. So almost as teams come together, recognising the benefits of them playing around certain topics or themes or things they need to turn their attention to. So first off, frame it in the right way, just the benefits of play guys it's gonna it's gonna be something that is going to be useful for us to bond together to be able to connect more easily i think then people need to feel safe to play so again we need to be conscious of making sure that the team feels it's a safe space to play and then the nature of that play could be unstructured you could just say just go off and turn your attention to this use those lego bricks over there or pick up the big fat marker pens and paper, just go play. Just this is the topic, take it where you want to take it. So you could think about the way you bring the teams together as well and give them opportunities to play and make sure it's a safe environment to do so. And it's probably thinking around, like we spent a couple of years without any sort of off-sites, away days, that type of thing. So think around when we do bring people back together, how do we create, you want your ideas to be different to the norm how do we create that environment where that sort of playful way of exploring things is open to us so do we go to a, a drab office building for our offsite or do we go somewhere which will stimulate us in a different way so you know is it a, an inner city warehouse with a bunch of cool things set up we can play with and or yeah so think around that sort of environment as well i think that's right i mean it's Everybody laughs at those big, uh, funky companies like Google and all of those in their early days, for sure, where they had 
they did have ball pits and <laughs> space hoppers and slides and things. And everybody sort of, oh, gosh, yeah, really? But it was just to instill a sense of play and a sense of liberation. And that's that's important, as you say, better than set in a in a small windowless box with strip lighting. <laughs> so, and the, the, yeah. the tension here is you, and absolutely agree, you often hear this, oh, we don't need ping pong balls and that stuff to innovate. Innovation is hard work. We don't, you know, just because you've got this window dressing doesn't mean anything. So uh, also just recognising that, just because you put on your cap backwards and go, hey, look at me, I'm funny guy. <laughs> Maybe, the, you know, it needs to be backed up by, it's not a simple solution. So, it's, yeah, it's, I think it's, a, it's an interesting one to think about. And, okay, coming back to framing the idea that we need play to do our best work, I think we can come back to that again, yeah. guys. If we can get into a state of play, if we can really sort of go a bit unbounded, not worry about things or outcomes then it's going to allow us to sort of uh, do our best work or come more likely to get us to our best work. So again, framing it, mindset, environment, and then sort of setting it up so people get a chance to do that without fear of any failure, just seeing it as experimentation again. Yeah, and Seth Godin says you need enough bad ideas, substitute bad for playful, you need enough playful ideas for eventually for some of them to be good ideas. So the more you can push to the ridiculous in the right time and place, all of a sudden it's much easier to edit a full page rather than edit a blank page. And you fill up that blank page with playful thinking and then you can pick the, the diamonds out of the rough. Now think about leaders, and we might have gone through this this with the teams. Is there anything you think, right, I, I lead an organisation, I lead a team, I lead whatever, in whatever capacity that may be, how, how do we you know, instigate or create an environment of play or the, the place where this can happen? Well, they obviously have a very highly visible role in this in terms of role modelling. So they have to embrace it themselves and be seen to embrace that sense of play or that sense of being able to bring play into some of the work that uh, they do. So that's the first thing, role modelling it. They have to then communicate players whether it's expected or accepted or or valued that has to be communicated and then it may be through again reward recognition spotting it praising it saying that was good like the way you played with that went off in a different direction might not have got to some particular result but great that you took initiative to go and play with something and see where it might go people have to realize that that behavior is not just acceptable, but actually encouraged. And you do that through recognition, I think. And also this notion of uh, people often talk around the Google 80-20 rule. And look, this kicked off in, this came to prominence when they went public in 2004. They said it's expected that you could spend 20% of your time on something which you're passionate about, but it has to be related to work outside of your core duties. Now, Googlers have often said this is really the 120% rule. So you've, <laughs> you work 100% of your time and you get 20% time, we expect to come up with something new. But a lot of good stuff originally came out of this as well. But thinking around, is there just, I think, as an experiment, like is there an experiment you could run with your organisation and just, you know, run it for a week and see what happens? Like is there the, the two-hour time slot 
where you could say, hey, for this time is that time to play on something work-related. We don't really, we don't care about the outcome, but we just care, we care that you document your journey or something along those lines. So then everyone's like, oh, I've got to contribute. But so maybe just try, I think, you know, even if outside of reward and recognition, try and experiment with some different things around play. And with the new hybrid type of arrangements and remote working with them, some teams having some times together in the office, maybe that's what you build into those days when people are in. You have playtime. Yeah. <laughs> I like the sound of that. Yeah. Playtime. There we go. Hop and as shop. we always, as we say, like a coffee we machine. Off. Yeah, yeah. As we say when we sign off, we always say, uh, stay curious, have fun, make stuff, play more. So really the ability to play is where we build the muscles of this uh, a creative mind, a curious mind, and where we can reimagine. We'll go to a quote just to wrap us up. A couple of quotes. Uh, one from my world, John. Uh, creative people are curious, flexible, persistent, and independent with a tremendous spirit of adventure and love of play. It's by Henri Matisse, the very famous uh, French painter. So really, I think of that sense of adventure and sense of play, that sense of curiosity, they sort of all come from the same place. And from Carl Jung, who is at the head of uh, psychology, psychoanalysis, and uh, a huge thought leader in his field, the debt we owe to the play of the imagination is incalculable. And incalculable? Yes, there we go. But look, I guess one <laughs> got it right. I think if we can't reimagine a better place. <laughs> the, de- the debt we owe to play of the imagination is unpronounceable. It's something, something, something. <laughs> but just think around imagination is so important. We can reimagine what a better future looks like, a better world, reimagine the way we solve problems like, you know, the environment, climate change, social inequality. This sense of play builds into this and builds into our, our social fabric and also a great life, I think, as well, John. A playful life is an enjoyable life. Now, John, given it was quite a, a meaty tome that we've explored, was there maybe just one thing that stood out at the end? I think? I think for me, it's just reframing play in our minds, whether that's as individuals or in the organisations we work in. We, we establish all of the wonderful benefits that play offers us as individuals and, and groups of individuals. You know, the, the psychological benefits, the, the benefits in the way it makes us uh, connect with people, the benefits to how it improves our problem-solving skills, etc. So just reframing that and making sure people know the real benefits of play is really key for this to take root. And then the second thing, with that knowledge, just embrace it then and bring energy to it because I, I think yeah. play without energy is it's pretty <laughs> tough. <laughs> if we were to play any game like tennis or something, if you've ever tried to play that with somebody who's not given it their all, it's it's not as satisfying an experience. Yeah, so bring bring a good <laughs> bring a good energy. And I think for me, the one is think of sort of systems thinking where everything operates within a system. And if you can't fix one part of the system without addressing the whole piece, play is just one part of this innovation system, I would think. And we have our creativity, we have our collaboration, we have our imagination, we have to be highly curious, and a bunch of other things. And play sits in that as part of that 
innovation ecosystem, problem-solving ecosystem, rather than just by itself. But look, as we know, or as we've explored, and really nice lesson for me thinking about my three hours of work tonight after this, how do you bring a sense of play, maybe that spirit of adventure, a little spirit of openness to that curiosity to what you're about to do? So that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. In the meantime, stay curious, make stuff. What's the other one? Have fun. (laughs) It has been a long show. (laughs) And play more. And date life, John. Date life. Oh, I keep forgetting we're adding ones on. (laughs) 